Hey guys, welcome to Cracked. I'm your host, Tristina Tucker, and I'm here with co-host Kendra Schrock. Hey guys. Since today is our very first episode, we wanted to tell you guys an extra special story. This is a chilling tale that shocked the city of New York in the 1980s. It's a captivating narrative of youth, money, sex, drugs, partying, societal standards, and death. You may have heard of the O.J. Simpson case. Before that, however, the preppy murder was the trial of the century. The case today is called The Preppy Murder. I first heard about this case through my favorite podcast, Crime Junkie, which if you haven't listened to them, you totally should. But they covered this case, and I was absolutely enthralled. When Kendra and I decided we were going to start this show, I knew this was the perfect case to start with. I watched the docuseries on Sundance, which featured this case. It was a five-part series, it was educational, and it was super entertaining. And we will post the link on our website for those of you who are interested in watching. I'm just going to jump right into this. Our story begins in Central Park on August 26, 1986. Pat Riley, who was an equity trader at the time, was riding her bike through Central Park in the early hours of August 26th. So she's riding, and she comes up on Panther's Hill. Now she sees a car with blacked-out windows driving down the wrong way, and she's immediately suspicious because this in itself is quite unusual. But she keeps going, and not long after, she comes upon something far worse. Pat Riley is riding and she looks and sees a young woman lying under a tree. She immediately knew something was wrong because of the girl's position. The woman's shirt had been pulled up over her chest and she had one leg tucked back and one arm sticking up. So Riley calls the police and when police arrive at the scene, they shut down everything. Every entrance and exit, tunnel and bridge in and out of New York City. So this was like a big deal. Oh yeah, this case was huge. And when police begin to take a closer look at the body, there's a few things they notice right off the bat. The first thing was that her skirt was pulled up over her waist. The other thing is that she had tan lines where jewelry would have been, such as like her wrist and her fingers, which means that her jewelry was stolen. She also had scratches and deep bruising all over her body. And one of the most prominent things that comes to police's attention is this deep red and brown bruising all over her neck as if she had been strangled. The assumption at this point is that no woman would willingly venture into Central Park at night. So they think that this was just kind of a dump site and the crime scene had occurred at like a secondary location. Police also believe this killing had been done by a stranger to the victim, meaning the victim did not know her killer. At the scene, police found her ID and they temporarily identify her as 18-year-old Jennifer Levin. Now, the Levins lived in Soho and when police arrived to tell the family about their daughter, the media was already outside. Jennifer's uncle Dan describes Jen as a bubbly, outgoing, wonderful social kid. She was planning on attending college in Boston the following week. One of Jennifer's friends, Peter Davis, says this about Jen. Everything that was different about Jennifer was what attracted me to her. And throughout this case, you're going to hear everybody twisting the story about who Jennifer was, so it's important to keep in mind that she really was a good kid. Now I'm going to go into explaining her official injuries and cause of death. Like I said, she had deep bruising, and her left eye was actually protruding out of the socket, and the medical examiner said that she took a major hit to the head. She had teeth that were loose in her mouth as if she had been beaten pretty badly. She also had these scratch marks below her nose that were actually made from her own fingernails. The medical examiner believes that something was covering her mouth 
and she fought to pull it down, and that is what scratched her face. She put up the fight of her life, which is a direct quote from lead detective Mike Sheen. And her official cause of death was asphyxiation by strangulation, so she was strangled as police originally speculated. One of the first things police have to do in this case, and really in any case, is retrace the steps of the victim and find out how this young girl ended up in Central Park. But before I get into where Jennifer was, I'd like to give you an idea of the kind of lives Jennifer and her friends were living. These kids were what you'd think of when I say Upper East Side privileged kids. They were very wealthy and just the stereotypical preppy kids you get living in Upper East Side Manhattan. Now these kids' parents were gone a lot. Some were away on business and some were vacationing in the Hamptons or in Europe. This meant that these kids were unsupervised the majority of the time, and they were free to do what they wanted, when they wanted, wherever they wanted. This is really giving me Gossip Girl vibes. Oh, yeah, totally. That's literally what I was thinking of the entire time I was researching this case. So these kids, they partied every weekend at whoever's house was parent-free. And not only were they partying, but they were clubbing hard in high school. I mean, very exclusive Studio 54 type clubbing. All of these kids had fake IDs, but a lot of the time, they didn't even need to use them. They could get into the party without showing their IDs. Because of all the freedom they had, they began abusing substances. There was some very heavy drinking among this group, and not only was there drinking, but they were using drugs as well. They used mild drugs like pot, but they were also doing very hard drugs. I'm talking about cocaine, ecstasy, that type of thing. Jennifer's best friend, Jessica Doyle, said when interviewed, we were having a great time, but we were not okay. And I think that very much sums up these kids' lives. They were having fun and partying, but they were not stable and they were not healthy. So when police arrived to talk to Jennifer's dad, he said that she was supposed to be staying the night with her friend Alex Legata on the Upper East Side. When police went to speak with Legata, she told them that she and Jennifer were hanging out at a place called Dorian's Red Hand Bar. Now, Dorian's was kind of the place to be if you were these kids. It was known as this preppy hangout where all the privileged kids went to start the night until they left to party harder someplace else. Since the police knew she could have been with anybody at Dorian's, they started asking around trying to compile a list of who was there and who Jennifer was with. One particular name that kept coming up over and over and over again is Robert Chambers. Police assumed 19-year-old Robert Chambers was just another kid at the party, and so they went to talk to him to see if they could find out any more about who Jennifer was with or what happened to her once she left. When they get there, they immediately know that something is off about this kid. But keep in mind, they still believe that Jennifer was killed by a stranger at this point. So they arrive at Robert's house, and his mother answers the door. Police ask if they can speak to Robert, and she says, you know, he's asleep, but I'll go get him. So when Robert comes out, he has all of these fresh scratches all over his face. And there's a picture on our website for those of you who want to follow along. So the police see this, and they're like, hey, why don't you come down to the station with us so we can ask you a couple of questions? So, like, at this point, is he a person of interest, or are they just, like, questioning him for more information on her that night? Well, when they originally see him, he is not a person of interest, but as soon as they see these scratches, they're like, this could be our guy, and he does become a person of interest in the eyes of law enforcement. So when Robert goes down to the precinct with police, he brings this file of facts with all of the phone numbers of everyone he talks to. 
And you know, at first he was super cooperative and he even shows police scratches on his chest willingly and says these and the ones on his face were made from a cat. Did they believe him for that? Oh no, absolutely not. They knew that he was full of it. Police also notice he has a hand injury with damage to the fifth metacarpal. This particular type of injury is quite common in boxers who hit wrong. So this just raises police suspicion even more. Now, Robert originally told police that he and Jennifer said goodbye outside of Dorian's and went their separate ways. A few hours into this conversation, though, the mood begins to shift and Robert Chambers starts getting more defensive and more importantly, his story changes. That is never good. Oh, no, absolutely not. Whenever anybody's story changes, red flags should be going up everywhere. So how exactly does his story change? Now, instead of saying goodbye outside of Dorian's, him and Jennifer took a walk up 86th Street. Now, this is huge because for those of you who aren't aware, 86th Street leads you right into Central Park. So at this point, it's 7 p.m. on August 26th, and Chambers still hasn't lawyered up. So police decide to get a videotaped statement from Chambers. Now, I'm not going to read the entire transcript of this statement because it's like an hour long, but I am going to give you a brief synopsis. So he starts by saying that he got to Dorian's around 11.30. He was just hanging out with his friends. Then around midnight, Jennifer came over and started talking to him. He said to police that he wasn't really interested in Jen. Then she asked Chambers if he wants to go outside and talk. Now for me, at this point, if he's not interested, why did he agree to go outside and talk? But, I mean, what can you do? So Jennifer and Robert go outside and start walking up 86th. Now, according to Robert, Jennifer suggested they go into Central Park in the middle of the night. So make of that what you will. His story is that he didn't want to go in the park, but they did anyway. He said they took a path that went right along the Metropolitan Museum of Art. Now, this is super important to make note of because not only was Jennifer found in Central Park, but the tree she was under was right behind the museum. This places Chambers at the crime scene with the victim shortly before her death. So after they talk for a little bit, Jen says that she's going to the bathroom. Chambers says that when she returns, she starts to almost massage his shoulders. She also makes a comment about tying his hands behind his back, and she does so with her underwear. Then she sits on his chest and begins to sexually assault him. And remember, this is all from Chambers' point of view. He tries to tell her to stop and that she's hurting him. But she wouldn't stop, so he gets his left hand free, if you can picture this, he gets his left hand free and tosses her over his right shoulder. Then he says he got up and the body didn't move. He thinks that she's just playing around at this point. Then why did he refer to her as the body? Well, that's what I'm saying. If he's referring to her as a body, isn't that totally contradicting the fact that he thinks that she's playing around? Eventually, it hits him that she's dead, so I'm not sure if he was saying that in hindsight or if he just slipped up. Police ask him what he did after this, and he tells them something absolutely crazy. He went across the street and watched police and reporters show up to the scene. So he just sat there and watched them? Yep. Kind of blows my mind, but it gets crazier. Then he went home and slept. And maybe I'm just normal, but I don't understand how you could kill somebody, not call the police, and then just go casually sleep it off. But I guess that's beside the point. So according to Robert's statement, Jennifer Levin is the aggressor and she sexually assaulted him. And he killed her accidentally, trying to defend 
himself, but he never meant to harm her. They didn't believe him, did they? Oh, absolutely not. Police are honest with Robert, and they kind of say, like, look, we don't believe you. I mean, you're 6'4 and 200 pounds, and you're telling us that she completely overpowered you? The other thing that really tips police off that he's lying is the fact that she had been beaten pretty badly anti-mortem, and she dies of strangulation, which really isn't lining up with his story. After this, police arrest Robert and charge him with second-degree murder. And, you know, they kind of thought this case was open and shut. I mean, they got their guy, and he confessed to causing her death. Wait, is that it? Oh, no, that's not even the beginning. One thing you'll hear us mention a lot in this case is the media. The tabloid media absolutely eats this case up. This is not a normal homicide. One reporter said, quote, This wasn't supposed to happen to privileged children who go to private schools made out of mansions and who don't leave home without American Express, end quote. Another reporter named McGee Hickey said no one could believe it. I mean, it's, quote, an Upper East Side, Kennedy-esque young man accused of murder. When everyone hears about this, they completely stop in their tracks because this beautiful girl is killed by this dashing young man and it, it just doesn't make sense to the public or really to anyone for that matter. One very important person in this case is defense attorney Jack Lippman. This guy was the best trial lawyer in the business and the Chambers had hired him to defend Robert. Lippman also really wanted this case because even from the beginning, everybody could tell that this case was super high profile and was going to be making headlines all over the country. Now, Lippman was ruthless. Ellen Levin, who is Jennifer's mom, describes Lippman as dangerous. One of the reasons for this is because he is not afraid to blame the victim. It wasn't a problem for him to absolutely attack Jennifer. Now, to be fair, he was just doing his job and defending his client, but it was still unmerciful nonetheless. He made statements saying that nobody gets assaulted for no reason. Whoa, 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 what? Yeah, my thoughts exactly. The perpetrator may have some sort of twisted reasoning, like obsession, entitlement, or living out a particular fantasy for attacking anybody. None of these, however, have anything to do with the victim and should never be blamed on the victim. Lindman also planted headlines in the newspaper saying how Jennifer was killed in, quote, rough sex. I want to read some of these headlines because I think it paints a very interesting picture of how this case was portrayed in the media. Actually, Kendra, why don't you go ahead and read some of these headlines? Ladies man held in slang. Jenny killed in wild sex and sex play got rough. To me, this is absolutely heartbreaking to see because we have absolutely no reason to believe this wild story that Robert Chambers is telling. Jennifer's friend Jessica Doyle said the narrative that is out there about her life is completely inaccurate. And the important thing to note is that Jack Littman's approach really worked. Suddenly, all of Robert's neighbors describe him as a kind soul who would never hurt anyone. Honestly, at this point, the media is almost Team Robert Chambers. Wait, are you kidding? Nope. Robert Chambers is the hero who, by the way, in case we forgot, did in fact confess to killing Jennifer Levin. But everyone just thought that Robert Chambers was too attractive to be violent, which we all know is simply not the case, but that was not made clear at the time. One important thing to note about the prosecution is that Steven Sirocco, who was supposed to be the lead prosecutor on the case, ended up taking Robert's original videotaped statement, which would have been a conflict of interest if he had to testify. Because of this, the case was given to Linda Fairstein, so she ended up being the lead prosecutor. 
The prosecution is trying to figure out how close Robert and Jennifer really were and what actually happened that night. Jessica Doyle said that Jennifer had seen Robert around and thought he was an attractive guy. And since Jessica was friends with him, Jennifer asked if she could introduce the two of them. So they met at this champagne party on Valentine's Day of 1986. What's a champagne party? I have absolutely no idea. Something way too rich for me. Jennifer told Jessica that she really liked Robert and that she wanted to date him. Robert tells police in his initial interview that he and Jennifer never dated, but they did have relations two or three times. The prosecution was also trying to discover what happened at Dorian's as well. On the night of August 25th at Dorian's, it was a time of rejoicing. Everyone was getting ready to go off to college and they were partying. Now, Jennifer had been out of town with her friend Peter Davis, but she wanted to come back to hang out with Robert. So Jen was at Dorian's that night with her friend Alex Legata, but Legata left early with a guy she met, which meant that Jennifer was there by herself. Robert, on the other hand, was supposed to meet his 16-year-old girlfriend at the time, Alex Cap, which is a different Alex than the one Jen was staying with, so try to keep that straight. Anyway, he was supposed to meet Alex at 8. However, like he said in his statement, he didn't show up until 11.30, and when he showed up, he walked right past Alex and went to the bar. She got mad, as she should, and came over and yelled at him in front of all of his friends and Jennifer, who at this time was talking to Robert. Then everyone, including Jen, began laughing at the whole situation as Alex stormed off. That's kind of the last thing the prosecution has to go off of before they start taking into consideration Robert's side of the story. The prosecution really needed a plan, and Littman was really hurting the prosecution by saying all of these bad things about Jennifer. He said that she was asking for it because she made a move on Robert, which I totally disagree. I don't really think anybody is asking to get brutally beaten and strangled in Central Park, but maybe that's just me. Jennifer also got shamed for wearing such a short skirt. Isn't that completely irrelevant considering there was no sexual assault? Yeah, I think that's kind of common in cases like this, is people like to assume that it's the victim's fault because of what she was wearing, even though there was no sexual assault. It's also crazy because Jennifer was receiving all of this backlash and the only thing that came up regarding Robert Chambers was how attractive he was. What Fairstein, the lead prosecutor, said she needed to do was destroy the image that Jack Littman had painted of Chambers. He was not the choir boy that he was portrayed to be to the public. The prosecution had to level the playing field. But before we get too far into this breakdown of Robert's past, I want to take a second to tell you about his family. His dad, Bobby Chambers, had a decent job, but the Chambers were not millionaires by any means. How is he living this rich lifestyle? Well, Robert's mom, Phyllis Chambers, was a private nurse for very wealthy families. So she saw the lives that all these rich kids were living, and she wanted her son to be a part of it. She always put Robert in very elite clubs to get him recognition among a more popular crowd. She even made him an altar boy at the Catholic Church. She aspired to have a very Kennedy-like son. Kendra, do you remember that file of facts that Robert brought to the police station? Yeah. Well, that ended up being police's biggest tool. The prosecution used this book to call everybody in there and find out about who Robert really was. And what they find is shocking. Robert did not try as hard as his mother to get into these elite clubs. He was thrown out of multiple schools on account of his grade and the fact that he stole a teacher's wallet. Fairstein also found out that Robert had a big problem with stealing. Apparently, Robert and his two friends would go to parties and steal money, jewelry, and fur coats from the parents' bedroom. They just kind of felt entitled to it, said one of their friends. So his friends knew about this? Everyone kind of knew about it, but nobody wanted to be held responsible, which is a direct quote from Jessica Doyle. 
Robert also went on a date with this one girl and he stole her credit card. He proceeded to then spend $3,000 on random stuff and he wasn't even held accountable. So did he pay it back? Actually, no, he didn't pay it back. His friend's dad was the one that actually ended up paying this girl her money. And another important thing to note is on the night of August 24th, which was two days before Jen was killed, Robert was staying at Alex Cap's house. In the early hours of the 25th, which is about 24 hours before Jennifer was murdered, Robert decided that he wanted to go home. So he asked Alex for money to get there. She said she had a 5 and a 50 in her wallet and she told him to grab the 5. After he left, she had this suspicious feeling that she should check her wallet. When she does this, she sees that she's missing all of her money. She calls him and asks about it because she thinks that maybe he took it by accident. When she calls though, he says that he never took any money. This was a huge turning point for Alex in the relationship because she came to a sudden realization that he was a bad guy. It came to Linda's attention though that Robert had a serious drug problem. He had been addicted to all sorts of drugs since age 14. 14? Yeah, that was a pretty young age for him. He had a specific problem though with cocaine. One important thing to make note of though is that Jennifer told her sister Danielle that one of the main reasons she wanted to be around Robert was because she thought she could fix him and help him with his drug problem. Now at this time, Robert is coming up on bail. The Archbishop of Newark, whose name was Theodore McCarrick, submitted a letter for Robert's bail. McCarrick said that he was, quote, a gentleman and had a very special respect for persons, end quote. This carried a ton of weight in the case because this guy was a huge deal in New York City. In the 1980s, politics and the church in New York were very closely related. McCarrick was on the fast track to becoming the Cardinal of the United States, and eventually he does just that. It comes to everyone's attention, though, that McCarrick never actually met Robert. He knew Phyllis, which was his mom, and he was actually Bobby Chambers' godfather, but he had never met Robert or spent any one-on-one -on -one time with him. Bail was set at $150,000. Could the Chambers even afford this? Oh, no way. Everyone in the Catholic Church collected money, and one guy in particular gave up his entire life savings just for Robert's bail. So Robert gets released, and he is living in the church with the priest. And not only that, he is walking around Jennifer's old neighborhood in Soho as if none of this had even happened. Meanwhile, Linda is working to find out more about Robert. She gets this call from a detective who says she's working on a $70,000 felony burglary case from a year prior to Jennifer's murder. The detective said that they found Robert's driver's license at the crime scene. How was he not arrested? Well, because when the detective interviewed him, she was totally charmed and found him so attractive. And he said that someone stole his wallet and left it at the crime scene and she totally believed him. And now that she's hearing all of this come out about Jennifer and Robert, she thinks that she may have had the right guy all along. Not only did they have his driver's license, they also had latent fingerprints on the medicine cabinet of the house that had been burglarized. And if they could match the prints to Robert, they could prove that he'd been in the apartment at the time of the burglary. So this takes a while to match, but they do end up matching to Robert Chambers. Linda also finds out that Robert had a so-called partner in crime during all of these burglaries. It ends up being this guy named David Filial, and this guy is bad news. 
The way that this all ended up going down is that Robert, who is this attractive white guy, would walk into a random building on Park Avenue and talk his way up to the apartments. David Fillion, on the other hand, was a young African-American man, and he could not as easily get past the doorman, so he would wait on the fire escape, and Robert would try unlocked doors. When he found one that was open, he would go in and steal everything and throw it down to Fillion on the fire escape, and they would split the goods. Fillion also got busted for selling drugs to Columbia students. On top of all that, he also got caught for raping a girl in her dorm room and then stabbing her five times in the chest. Linda ends up connecting Robert to 32 unsolved burglaries, and a few weeks after he gets out on bail, he was indicted. The prosecution was also super excited because they knew that Littman was preparing Robert to testify, which meant that they were going to have the opportunity to cross-examine him and expose his sociopathic ability to lie and deny. Now, Jack Littman has quite the problem on his hands because these burglaries are totally ruining his pristine image of his client. So, what he does is get Robert Chambers on the cover of a magazine. And not just any magazine, New York Magazine. Hold on, he's a killer. He shouldn't be on the cover of a magazine. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. And surprisingly, a lot of people don't even think this. On this cover, which we'll post on our website, Robert is in a suit and tie, and there's a small picture of Jennifer in the corner. He has a very Kennedy-looking way about him. Jessica Doyle said that it portrays Robert as, quote, this symbol of Upper East Side, class, wealth, beauty, and intelligence, end quote. It paints a very clear picture to the public with Robert as the saint and Jennifer as the sex-craved sinner. Now, one huge thing you'll hear in this case is the phrase sex diary. Somehow the defense finds out that Jennifer keeps this so-called sex diary. Sex diary? Yeah, well, that's not even really what it is. The defense thinks that it supposedly kept all these graphic details of Jennifer's personal relations, and the defense wants to subpoena this quote-unquote diary. The prosecution finds out, though, that it wasn't what the defense thought it was. It was just a date book that listed her appointments. So the prosecution asked the judge, and the judge was like, absolutely not. This is not admissible, and you will not be using this in court. Which is totally fair, because it's really not that helpful. At this point, though, the media had already gotten their hands on the phrase sex diary and was slapping it on the front page of every newspaper across America. At this point, was anyone actually even believing Jennifer's side of the story? Well, yes, there was a few people. There's this activist named Rose Jordan, and she made these pins that said justice for Jennifer. There was also this group called the Guardian Angels who would protest in the streets in honor of Jennifer. People thought as though Jennifer had been murdered twice. She was killed in Central Park, and her reputation and memory were murdered every day after. The prosecution doesn't have as strong of a case as the defense, because the defense has Robert Chambers' story, but the prosecution only has speculation. What they can use, though, is physical evidence. Jennifer was wearing this denim jacket on the night she was murdered, and when they found the body, the jacket was laying next to her. On this jacket were traces of blood and saliva. The only place, though, that Jennifer bled from was her mouth. So if the prosecution can prove that the blood on the jacket did belong to Jennifer, it would mean that Robert held the jacket up to her mouth and used it as the murder weapon. Now, Linda gets a call from the FBI saying that they have this new thing called DNA testing. Now, keep in mind, DNA had not been used at this point. But the FBI wants to use it in this case. Now, this is perfect because it will prove their jacket as the murder weapon theory. Another piece of evidence that the prosecution has is the physical injuries that Jennifer had sustained. 
Um, yeah, I was thinking about that. It doesn't line up with his side of the story. No, it 100% does not, and that's what the prosecution is trying to argue. Now, the defense 100% believed the physical injuries completely correlated with Robert's story. They asked forensic pathologist Werner Spitz to testify for them, explaining how the injuries matched, and he actually said no, because the injuries didn't match, and he began working on for the prosecution, which was a complete plot twist for the defense. Spitz said that Robert took Jennifer's blouse and thrusted it up into her neck and then placed the jacket over her mouth. Another important note to make is that asphyxial strangulation is not caused by tossing somebody over your shoulder, and I don't believe anybody who says that it is. Yeah, anyway, don't you have to hold it there for a while? Exactly. You have to hold someone's neck for two to three minutes to render them unconscious. And then once they have gone limp, you have to hold for another three minutes in order to kill them, which does require intent. Another very important thing to note is that Jennifer also had on earrings the night she was killed. And they were gone when the body was found. It's clear to the prosecution that Robert would have had to have been the one that stole them. But since they can't prove it, they aren't allowed to bring it up in court. This really bothers me though because they couldn't bring it up in court. Because it wasn't provable. But they had to cover Jennifer's ears in a picture from that night because you could see the earring she had on. The judge didn't want the jury to be biased and think Robert took the earrings because it's the only logical explanation. That doesn't make sense. Why couldn't they use that? That's my point. If it's the only logical explanation, then why couldn't they use it in court? Now, one of the prosecution's biggest issues in this whole case is the fact that the motive is very unclear. And motive is the one thing everybody wants to know. Why did Robert Chambers kill Jennifer that night? It's also, in this case, the difference between murder and manslaughter charges. If Robert gets a murder charge, that means that he had intent, but if he gets manslaughter charges, it could totally line up with his side of the story. So that is huge in the eyes of the prosecution. So did they have any theories? They did. They had three working theories at the time. The first possible theory is that Jennifer found out Robert was using drugs again and she got angry at him. Because remember, she told her sister that she was hanging out with him so she could help him with his drug problem. Then they fought and he had a violent outburst and killed her. Another running theory at the time is that the two of them were trying to have intercourse, but Robert could not sexually perform. Then Jennifer may have laughed or made a comment and he got mad and killed her. The last and most likely theory in the eyes of the prosecution is that when Jennifer went to the bathroom, Robert began stealing money out of her purse. She came back and caught him in the act. Then she got mad and threatened to go tell everyone back at Dorian's. He got mad and out of rage or the need to protect his reputation, he killed her. Another huge aspect of this trial is the jury. Judge Bell did not want a biased jury, and since this case had been on the front page of every newspaper in America, he had to make sure that his jurors were impartial. What he did was interview every prospective juror to make sure that none of them knew the case details, which was super difficult because it was one of the most famous trials in New York history. Just a side note, Ellen Levin did not want to attend the trial, and keep in mind this is Jennifer's mom. She talked to Dominic Dunn, and he convinced her this was the last battle she could fight for Jennifer. For those of you who aren't aware of who Dunn is, he is an investigative journalist whose daughter, Dominique, was murdered also. 
He is a huge part of the O.J. Simpson case and the murder of Martha Moxley, and we hope to cover both of those cases eventually, so keep that name in the back of your mind. The trial for this case began on January 3rd, 1988. Linda lays out for the jury what exactly happened on August 26th. One of the jurors said that Robert kind of had this vacant expression slash stare the whole time. This kind of lends aid to the fact that he could be considered sociopathic. This whole time, Jack Littman was kind of the star of the show, and it was almost like a performance for him. He tried to confuse the jury by showing them x-rays and not teaching them how to read it. He also had Robert bring his girlfriend named Sean Covell to court every day. This was Littman's attempt to portray Robert as this good guy that this smart girl would want to go out with and support. The jury deliberated for nine days, and they were in a deadlock eight to four. It was the prosecution's worst fear, a hung jury. The defense goes to the prosecution and offers to have Robert plead guilty to first-degree manslaughter, which does not require intent. The prosecution doesn't have any choice but to accept, and Robert is sentenced to 5 to 15 years in prison. That doesn't seem like enough in my opinion, but what can you do? Exactly. It was a very unfulfilling end to this case, especially for the Levins, but they couldn't put themselves through another trial, which to me is completely understandable. Now, one thing that comes to the eyes of the public after Robert has been put out on bail is this tape. In this video, Robert is sitting on the floor with Sean Covell and several other half-dressed women. He has this doll, and he turns it towards the camera, and in this horrific voice, he says, My name is... And then he pops her head off and says, Oops, I guess I killed her. And he laughs. Oh my gosh. Yeah, it wasn't really clear who he was talking about, but it's assumed that he was cracking jokes about killing poor Jennifer Levin. Robert ended up serving all 15 years of his sentence because he is on his worst possible behavior. Not long after Robert was out of jail, he got caught in a coke bust with Sean Covell. He got sentenced to 19 years in prison. And I think the thing that infuriates me the most about this entire case is the fact that his drug sentence is longer than the sentence he received for murdering this young, sweet, intelligent girl. One of the things that I want to draw your attention to is Theodore McCarrick. McCarrick stepped down from his position as Cardinal in 2018 because of allegations he received of sexually assaulting young teenage boys in New York 47 years prior. Robert Chambers would have been an altar boy around this time. It's unclear whether or not Robert was one of these boys, but we can't rule it out as a possibility. One thing to take into consideration is that when Robert gave his original statement, which I didn't mention, he says, I know that I've heard of men being raped. The detective kind of shook it off and said, um, no, I don't think so, which we know now that men can in fact be raped, but we don't know whether or not Robert did experience this sexual abuse as a child. In my personal opinion, I believe that it's possible that he could have experienced abuse, but I don't believe that it contributed to his sociopathy. So is Robert out of prison yet? Robert is not out of prison, but he will be released from prison in 2024 when he is 58 years old. We want to thank you guys for tuning in with us on our first episode. Kendra and I worked so hard on this, and we really hoped you enjoy it. We will be posting our next episode two weeks from now. Please be sure to give us a follow on Instagram and Twitter at crack.crime.podcast. You can also visit us on our website, which is linked in our bio. Feel free to send us an email with any case suggestions or questions regarding this case at crackcrimepodcast at gmail.com. 
Thank you so much, and be sure to tune in next time for Cracked.